I'm Letitia, host of the New Leaf podcast, created for new and working mums everywhere. Over the course of this series, I interview women from a variety of industries to share their journeys of what happened to their professional and personal identities when they had their babies and headed back to work, exploring the good, the bad, and the ugly. The motherhood space can be a scary one, but it doesn't have to be. By interviewing women in all spaces and lines of work and sharing their different experiences, I want to show you that there is no one right way and that we're all kind of winging it. My mission is to revolutionize the way we look at pregnancy, birth and motherhood, taking the judgment, pressure and expectations out and putting the confidence back in so that one day we can all say that it's my motherhood, my choice. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at New Leaf Podcast if you want to continue the conversation with the hashtag MyMotherhoodMyChoice. Before we begin, I've also got something extra special for you. Click the episode details to subscribe to New Leaf Nutshell, my exclusive monthly write-up, straight to your phone to break down and summarise some of the most controversial motherhood topics in a nutshell. Right now, I'm settling the breast and bottle debate for anyone who's struggling with breastfeeding, where I've referenced nearly 100 academic articles to give you impartial and well-researched advice, with none of the judgment. Doing all the googling so you don't have to. Right, let's get on with my intro to my next lovely guest. The sparkly Helen Wills joins me on Series 2, Episode 4 of New Leaf. Helen is one of those people that snuck up on me thanks to the Instagram algorithm, where her insanely colourful grid with its Instagram perfect pictures of sweet treats and jokes combined with her obvious joy and zest for life were pretty hard to ignore. I was intrigued by her tagline of being a mum of teens. My algorithm, Hall of Mirrors, sometimes makes me think that Instagram is only full of pregnant women, women with new babies, puppies and feminist quotes. So Helen's world of being a glamorous woman in her 50s making her living via blogging and building a community, I thought was definitely worth a second look, and I was not wrong. Helen and I explore her winding journey from highly successful operations director in the pub industry to its total antithesis of writer and mummy blogger, with all of its strange twists and turns. It was her journey with IVF, though, that really made me sit up and listen as I am so aware that it will be something that all of us will be encountering more and more as women have children later and later, our sedentary lives affect our fertility, and the pandemic scuppers life planning, and therefore family planning. The baby boom predicted by economists thanks to the pandemic has actually turned into a baby bust, with up to half a million fewer babies expected to be born in the States in 2021. And in our 30s, where pre-children ladies can feel like every year counts, this is something worth exploring. When I was younger, I truly thought that IVF was something that 40-year-olds plus did, and it just simply didn't enter my world. It didn't take me long to observe friends as young as 28 going through the unbelievably stressful process with all that it entails, very often in a context of what they call unexplained infertility, where neither side of the couple seems to have anything overtly wrong. It's just not happening. IVF side effects are significant. It is a highly medicalized process dependent on a cocktail of hormones and medication that unfortunately wholly and disproportionately affect the woman. From the so-called mild side effects, such as hot flushes, headaches, fatigue, extreme bloating and pain, there is also an increased likelihood of multiple births, an ectopic pregnancy and ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome, which can all put the mother at serious physical risk. And this isn't even touching on the extreme pressure, stress and emotional turmoil that infertility can put on a couple and their wider families, as well as people's professional lives as they take time off for the innumerable appointments that an IVF process entails, which my guest Helen goes into in some detail. It's also really worth mentioning some of the masculinity complexes arising from a couple needing to go through the process. I will never forget my feeling of horror when on telling a much older acquaintance that I was pregnant he immediately ignored me turned to my husband shook his hand and clapped him on the back saying well done in a loud voice healthy young bride like I was a thoroughbred horse that needed a slap on the rear before being sent out into the field to eat some hay 
This attitude is really A, sexist, and B, problematic for a few reasons. I've heard of throwaway comments frequently, such as, oh, he can't get her pregnant, or brazen questions like, got her pregnant yet? showing the endemic, outdated, inaccurate, and also just hurtful assumption that being fertile is representative of how much of a man you are. I often wonder how that must translate into the male ego and social settings where these types of comments and expectations are made, and I've seen it firsthand. I know multiple couples where the IVF is still a secret, where exclusively the male side of the couple doesn't want others to know that they've been having fertility problems. This puts undue emotional pressure on the woman to keep the secret when they're already going through such a huge physical and mental process and also encourages the awful feeling for both the man and the woman that infertility is something shameful where, of course, it is just nothing of the sort. Inevitably, though, there are also great reasons for keeping IVF a secret. Misconceptions, gossiping, unsolicited advice and random media headlines such as just relax, go on holiday and it'll happen are often deeply unwanted and deeply unhelpful to both sides of a couple. The myths around infertility mean that often strangers, family members and friends are all too eager to make and share with you sweeping judgments or assumptions that it is someone's job, maybe their lifestyle or diet that is apparently causing their infertility. And usually these judgments are cast on the women when actually all of these things might affect male fertility too. A good reason then to sometimes want to keep it to yourself. The impact that this must have on people's professional lives is undeniable. And you can see this in huge choices Helen was faced with in her own life. Fertility problems often cause people to move jobs or even consider quitting the workforce altogether, albeit temporarily, and should be talked about more. Helen and I talk a lot about the massive diversity in medical opinion too, and how fertility, pregnancy and childbirth are all amazing examples of being told to just trust what the doctor is telling you or do what the doctor is telling you to do, before realising that different doctors have different opinions and that often it is simply a case of listening to the advice, sourcing some more advice and then making your own choices. Helen's bravery going through gruelling IVF only to have one more go with someone else recommended whose approach was completely different, gentle and, by the way, which actually worked without needing any IVF at all, was a great example of how important our instincts are and to work with people who aren't just seeing you as a number. A truly amazing coincidence is that her fabulous fertility doctor 15 years ago is the same as my lovely guest Emma's of Series 1, Episode 8, whom he also helped to have her rainbow babies. Helen's whole attitude to life and the zany space of mummy blogging was a fascinating listen. To truly make a living out of something so independent, visual and also based on personality is impressive and she is performing a real service by trying to shed light on the teenage space. As she rightly points out, it is unfair and also kind of impossible to talk about your teenage child's problems online without them seeing it. But it doesn't mean that parents are in any less of a need of advice and support at one of the most challenging times of their child's life. This episode gave me a lot of food for thought, as you can hear, and I hope it does for you too. Introducing the most colourful mum there is, the mum goals, Helen Wills. Welcome, Helen. Hi, thank you for having me. You're very welcome. I will just explain how we know each other. It's quite random. It's really through Instagram and the algorithm. What else can I say? I obviously follow a lot of mummy hashtags and Helen popped up and her Instagram grid is so colourful and amazing and eye-catching. And I was like, this woman is like my goal. I would like to be this woman. (laughs) (laughs) That hashtag that you found me on was probably colourful mums because that that's the hashtag that I use. Oh my God, is it? I didn't even realise that. Yeah. Where are you in the world right now and what can you see in front of you? Oh gosh, this is going to be the most boring answer you've ever had to this question. I'm in St Albans, which is a 20 minute train ride out of St Pancras. So I'm very close to London. 
Right now, I can see my next door neighbour's brick wall and drain pipe through the window. (laughs) I'm in my study, which is very colourful, and I've got a desk full of paper and loads of things blue tacked to my walls. That's how I work. Blue tack, I love it. Very old school. Quite retro. Mm. (laughs) So tell me about your immediate family unit. So we're classic family of four. Me, my husband Jason, who is a marketing director for a med tech company. My daughter Maddie, who's 16, and my son Evan, who is 13. Okay, so you are well and truly into the terrible teens. You know they start at around age seven though, don't you? (laughs) No, I don't. And now you're filling me with terror. (laughs) It's just to give you good practice and a run up. Oh, excellent. This is really good to know. So tell me, what did you do pre-babies? So I was an operations director for a retail company. It was a pub retail company. So I had what sounds like lots of people's dream job. I had 140 pubs to manage in central London and a team of area managers. And that's it, basically. We ran those businesses. How on earth did you get to that job? totally by accident and this is something that I tell my kids all the time do not just follow your nose into a job choose something that you really love and fight to get that I did a thing called the milk round at university I don't know if they even do that anymore or if it's called that but basically big companies would come to universities and it was like a fair and students would go around and visit them and take their application packs and listen to their presentations and then apply for some and I applied for general marketing and advertising roles because I did not know what I wanted to do with my life I'd done a language degree I did Spanish and French, loved it. But, and bear in mind, this was 35 years ago. Mm. Oh, gosh. There didn't seem to be the variety of career choices that there are available now. So with a language degree, all I thought I could do was teach languages, which I didn't want to do. I'd be a terrible teacher. Or move abroad and be a translator, for which you seemed to need to live in Switzerland, basically, or Luxembourg or somewhere like that. And I didn't want to live abroad. So I had no idea what I wanted to do. But anyway, I was offered two graduate training schemes. One was with British Steel, and I thought that was going to be boring and tough and male dominated. I I made that (laughs) assumption and took the other one, which was with a pub retail company, which was male dominated and tough, but not boring. And I can imagine with a pretty good social life. Oh gosh, yeah. I was running a pub at the age of 22 by myself (laughs) in Romford, which at the time wasn't the nicest of areas to run a pub. (laughs) My dad was horrified by my choice of career, but as I say, I just fell into it. I was good at it and I did whatever I was told to do. So my dad came up to visit me and he got up early because he's an early riser and the cleaner came in at about 4.30 in the morning. That was fairly standard to get the work done before the day began. I found them one morning sitting, having a chat. And after the cleaner had gone, my dad said, your cleaner just told me that last week you went to bed and left the front door of the pub unlocked in the middle of Romford (laughs) just me on my own in this pub with a load of cash yeah that could have ended really not well yeah I was (laughs) I was lucky and how did everybody working in the pub treat you as a 22 year old woman running it 35 years ago or whatever it was Mm. in that particular pub not great basically part of your training was to learn how to run a pub which you should know if you're going to manage the people that do the job I'm very impressed. Romford as well, especially, and this is no this is no disrespect to Romford or Essex at all, but I can just picture what it would perhaps be like 35 mm. years ago. Did you feel like it helped you grow a thick skin? Yes. Oh my God, yes, completely. Unfortunately, it also helped me grow an anxiety problem that I never had before. How? What happened? It was a very stressful job and it continued to be so as I progressed up the line. Pubs are open, gosh, now, 11 in the morning till early hours of the morning, seven days a week. And pubs come with customers and alcohol and customers and alcohol often come with problems. (laughs) And Mm. so when there's a problem, it's not confined to office hours and you were on all the time. 
I can only imagine actually, if you are kind of a small young woman, it is quite difficult to assert your authority, Mm. surely, over people who are misbehaving. I remember my very first area of pub managers. I had 20 pub managers and I was 23 and I had to hold an area meeting where I introduced myself to them and found out a little bit about them and talked about what the business was looking for over the next month. I remember my first one standing up there literally shaking but determined that they wouldn't see that. But I don't want to be sexist, but the majority of these guys, and most of them were really good as it turned out, but the majority of them were middle-aged men Mm. or older than that. And there was a lot of eye rolling and a lot of arms crossed and a lot of slouching and a lot, you could tell they'd had a conversation in the bar before they came through. (laughs) Yeah, I wonder how long this one's going to last. And I lasted and they lasted. Some of them I had to fire. And we ended up a really good team and we had a lot of respect for each other. And I know they had respect for me because we stayed in touch whenever I moved on. But yeah, to begin with, that's a tough gig. That's a really tough gig. And did you find that the anxiety increased as you went up the chain? Is that what drove you to move on eventually? How long did you spend in that job? 12 years. That's a long time. It is, yeah. And I just literally went up the ranks step by step. I was the first female operations director they'd ever had. And that was quite a big deal at the time. I was 31, I think. And then the the companies like that are always going through reshuffles. One pub company buys another, sells a bit off. And it was during one of those phases, I looked at the next step. And I'd been thinking about the next step for a long time. And I just thought, I don't want that or any of the jobs that are on a level with that. I just don't want that level of responsibility because the next job up was CEO level. And so the opportunity came for redundancy and I took it. And yeah, that was the end of that. That's a huge decision to make though. And I think that's a huge learning curve in itself to realise actually you don't have to just keep going up sometimes it as Cheryl Sandberg says career is a jungle gym rather than a ladder Mm. you know you're going down slides or scaling up things diagonally rather than always just going up in a straight line doesn't work yeah yeah or moving to the other side of the gym (laughs) or a different gym yeah different gym different country what happened after that so when you took the redundancy did you have something else to go to I did just for a security blanket, really. I took a salary cut and went to David Lloyd Leisure, the health and fitness clubs, and did exactly the same role there, but only for a year. Um, And then I left them of, of my own accord because I was 34 when we got married and we decided we wanted to have children and we were really struggling and going through all the fertility processes. And I had this redundancy money and I just thought, I'm going to take some time out and focus on. IVF as it happened. But we went down the IVF route for a period of time. And whilst I was doing that, I started a psychology degree at the local university and completed a year of that. And at the end of that, I had my baby. And um, yes, thought I'd be going straight back after three months and never did. Babies have other plans, don't they? (laughs) Mm, Obviously, we're going back in time a little bit now. And 34, were there many women going down the IVF route at that time? Was that something that was quite common or talked about or not really? It's not something that was talked about because we didn't have social media or there were online email forums, but I hadn't discovered those until much further down the line. So no, it was one of those things that we kept to ourselves. I had a friend who was going through it at the same time, but lots of women were doing it. My consultant at the local hospital likes to refer people to a Harley Street clinic called the ARGC, which has a huge success rate. But it's an incredibly stressful process. It's very intense. So they hyperstimulate to get as many eggs as possible, as many embryos as possible to increase their chance of a successful pregnancy. Mm-hmm. But you, it really is conveyor belt commodity. It's a horrible thing to have to go through for anybody. But with hindsight, you're very driven at that point. When you're referred for IVF, you're like, yes, how fast can I get there? What are my chances of success? I want to go for the biggest chance of success. You're not counselled through, hang on, it might be better to take it slowly. 
And actually, to be fair, I was 36 at this point. I did feel pressure and the anxiety really ranked up then. I thought that leaving a stressful job would make me completely chilled. But no, it just transferred to the need to get pregnant, the need to have a healthy baby. I suffered from miscarriages. So, yeah, so all of that kind of, yeah. (laughs) wasn't a good time no and I think it's funny isn't it because I think sometimes people feel like leaving the stressful job or whatever is going to remove that sense of internal stress but that's exactly what it is it's internal Mm. and sometimes you're not necessarily addressing what it is about your disposition or perhaps standards that you're holding yourself to that might be that source of stress like even if the job obviously enhances it massively and makes it worse I think people see that as the quick fix don't they like leave the stressful job and then I'll be fine and everything will be super chilled and relaxed and I think particularly if you're someone like you who's been really successful in your career and is used to having all that drive and motivation it doesn't just evaporate just because you've left the job and it sounds like it was just a transfer as you said yeah exactly and I don't think I'd ever realised that I was quite a stressed, perfectionist kind of person. Well, I knew I was perfectionist, but that kind of triggered me to be quite an uptight person, actually, for quite a long time. And I know a few people, actually, who've been through IVF. And I know just third hand that obviously it can be extremely stressful. But I think the process hasn't really differed that much from back then as it is now. I understand that it's a huge hormonal thing to go through, right, in terms of daily injections, etc. So what happens? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so basically I had to take all the hormones to stimulate egg production. Before you can start on those, you have to go in from the day of your last period, I think, you go into the clinic two or three times for blood tests so that they can determine when is the best time to start these injections of hormones to stimulate egg production. And then you get to the point where you've had all of those, you go back in. Oh my God. You go back in, you go under anaesthetic and they retrieve all the eggs and they do the Petri dish thing. And this was driving into London every two days for blood tests. And then you wait. I had to wait five days. A lot of people wait three, but I had so many viable embryos that they wanted to wait two more days to see how many would fail so that they then had the strongest candidates. Then you have them put back in one or two I had two, I think. And then you wait two weeks and they say to you, they don't tell you to sit in bed and do nothing, but they say not to take any risks. And at my particular clinic, they said I had to drink three pints of milk every day and five (laughs) litres of water every day. What? Yeah. The milk was for the protein, supposedly, to, to help these embryos grow. And the... Water was for the hyperstimulation of the ovaries. So when you've produced 22 eggs, which I did, you're at risk of, I think it is hyperstimulation and hyperstimulation can make you extremely ill. So you have to drink a lot of water to flush those hormones out as fast as possible. So they basically pump you as full as possible without killing you with hormones <laughs> and then try to get them out of you as fast as possible. So I did just sit in my bed, which was the most ridiculous thing to do, drinking fluids and panicking. Every time I stood up, I worried if these babies were going to fall out. Ridiculous. But that is the headspace you get into. I know if people are listening who've been through IVF, they will know exactly what I mean by that. And how did the hormones make you feel? Oh, yeah. No, I had those classic, I'm crying, but I don't know why moments. Um, (laughs) And yeah, lots and lots of anxiety. And I I don't really remember, but I remember it being a horrible time. And I felt bloated and in pain. My ovaries were painful. Not surprised after 22 eggs. Mm, Yeah. Yeah, that is wild. So I assume that then you had a positive pregnancy test outcome, or what happened? Well, I won't go into the long story, but basically, yes, I did. But they said it was quite a weak result, and I should come back two days later to get it confirmed. So that was another two days waiting. Came back two days later, and it was a negative. Okay, chemical pregnancy, or whatever. Basically, yes, exactly that. 
did another cycle, got another positive test and they said, fine, that's great. Come back in six weeks for a scan when we should be able to see the heartbeat. So at that point, we got ourselves quite hopeful. I went back in for the scan on my own. My husband was working away from home and they see 20 women a day. So he was really perfunctory about it. And he just did the scan, poked around for a while and went, no, there's nothing there. And then I miscarried. So yeah, whether it was a chemical pregnancy, it went on for a bit longer. That was incredibly tough. And you know what? At that point, they hauled us in for more blood tests and said, basically, you've got antibodies that are causing you to miscarry early. I'd had two previous early miscarriages because I have polycystic ovaries and you're never, ever going to be able to have a normal pregnancy. You're going to need help with this. So we recommend you order this drug from America. It's not available in the UK, but it's not licensed in the UK. Order this drug from America and take IVIG. It's an antibody. I can't remember what it stands for, but it's an antibody infusion whilst you go through your next cycle. And this is going to cost you X on top of the cycle, which is Y. And I did some research into this drug in America, and it was untested on pregnant women. We had a long (laughs) conversation and decided this isn't worth it. Financially, risk-wise, the pressure on my body the pressure on our mental health, this is not worth it. We're not going to have children. Because we're not going to have children, we can't live in St Albans anymore. If you know St Albans, it's very kind of white middle class, families, 2.4 children, good schools. That's what you come to St Albans to do, basically. (laughs) So both of us are big skiers, or were at the time, and we applied to be ski chalet hosts in Canada and we started the emigration process. Oh my god. Yeah. Okay. Where in yeah. Canada? Probably Vancouver so that we could do ski seasons in Whistler. That sounds heaven. Mm. And yeah. then what happened? Well, we were, we were quite excited about this, so we were up for it. I remember making meal plans for my chalet. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, and Jason went and learned French in case we had to go to France instead of Canada. And um I just decided that we're getting our lives sorted. This is the new life we're going to have. But one aspect of my life that needs sorting is my ovaries, polycystic. I was overweight because of it. I struggled to lose weight. And I had felt at my best after the IVF attempt, my periods came back to normal. And it was because of the drilling of the cysts on on the ovaries. Mm. So I went back to my GP and said, we're not having children. I need to get my ovaries sorted send me to the best expert you can find on polycystic ovaries. My husband's got medical insurance, please. Yes. And she <laughs> sent me to a lady at the Chelsea in Westminster who said, hang on, I can sort your polycystic ovaries out, but you've just been through really rigorous IVF. There's no way I would have put you through anything that intense, but I know a bit about early miscarriage after having PCOS And I have a colleague who treats that really effectively. Do you want to try one more round of IVF with us and go and see this guy? So that threw us into a quandary. (laughs) And to cut a long story short, we went and saw this guy and he changed my life with one very straightforward pill and injection of harmless drugs. He said, you can try an IVF, but you can also try for a natural pregnancy. Start taking these pills was basically metformin, which is a diabetes drug, really standard pill. And if and when you get pregnant, you take one injection of heparin every day for the first... Oh yeah, heparin. However long. Well, actually, it was for the first 36 weeks because the problem is with polycystic ovaries, you form clots and that prevents the embryo from embedding. So do you want to try that? So we tried that, got pregnant within two weeks. No. (laughs) Did the injections and had my daughter. And three years, well, two years later, I went back to my GP and said, I need another one of those ovarian drilling procedures. I need to go back on the metformin and then I'll need a prescription for heparin. And then we have my son. I'm I'm like slightly speechless. That is is insane. Isn't it? After going to a specialist IVF clinic as well, I know that this is so blindingly obvious to everyone, but the incredible variation you get in medical opinion, full Mm -hmm. stop, 
it's just amazing like one doctor will tell you one thing and you'll present exactly the same problem to someone else and we'll just tell you something else yeah it is quite shocking and it just took unfortunately 18 months and a lot of money and a lot of heartache and physical procedures for me to arrive at the right person isn't that amazing though? And I'm just a divine intervention at its finest. What, what are the chances? Yeah, because we were totally sold on, we're not having kids, we're off to Canada. Like, bye, I'm off to go skiing <laughs> every day. No, P.S. actually, but you're destined for um, nappies and baby joy instead. Mm. But how wonderful, mm. how amazing. And you must have been completely over the moon. Oh yeah, completely. But again, the anxiety then kicked in. And I know this to be a fact for a lot of mums who've been through miscarriages or procedures. You don't feel like you should be allowed to have this baby at any point during the pregnancy. You feel like you've cheated nature and that therefore something's always going to go wrong. So you can't enjoy it. And I guess if you've had miscarriages, I think it takes away that blissful ignorance that I think should be there for the women who've conceived naturally and everything's gone perfectly. They might have quite a joyful pregnancy in that way. All these pregnancies that happen without a hitch, I think the ones that do happen with hitches or rather don't happen because of hitches, I think can really discolour your future experience, even if you do get pregnant. And did you feel like at any point you could then relax in the pregnancy or did you just feel on edge all the way through right up until the end? Mm, all the way through I had some spotting throughout the first 20 weeks as well yeah (laughs) (laughs) really doesn't help the anxiety no so luckily I had a way in with the consultant at the hospital so I would just ring him and go it's happened again can I come for a scan and he would scan me and say it's fine but yeah I was just waiting for it all to go wrong right up until the very last minute that's crazy and how was your birth <laughs> incredibly painful, incredibly fast. Um, <laughs> fast is good. Well, fa- she arrived three and a half hours into her due date, and I started to really feel labour at about 11 pm. So labour was only about four hours. And I remember not being that zoned, calm, mooing woman that I wanted to be (laughs) I remember kneeling on the bed in the labor room with the midwife saying to my husband it's going really fast that's why she's so stressed (laughs) and I was like thank god I'm not just a weird weakling (laughs) (laughs) four hours that is mad that's Mm. absolutely mad and again one of those amazing myths I love that they propagate which is first baby no it's going to take a long time and I know a few people where it's been like six hours bish bash bosh out they come so that's extraordinary but also wonderful to get it over with it was actually and you know the worst of it was actually I gave birth there was no time for pain relief other than gas and air so I gave birth with no pain relief and then they said I'm really sorry we're really struggling to do your stitches we need to give you an epidural oh for god's sake After all that. Yeah, yeah. I guess you'd rather probably have an epidural if you have stitches, to be perfectly frank. Oh, God, yeah, no, I was not coping. (laughs) I definitely needed the pain relief at that point. (laughs) So that was Maddie and she arrived. Yeah, I, I always actually put it down to her personality. She was bang on time as early as she possibly could be, as fast as she possibly could be, desperate to be in the world and experiencing things. And that's her personality all over. Whereas my son second baby took oh at least 10 hours I didn't go in until 10 p.m and he was born at about half past five but I'd been in labor all evening and he was so chilled and happy to play by himself I know there's a thing of second babies are often more entertained by what's going on around them and you don't actually pander to them as much as you do your first but (laughs) yeah he took his time about everything and he still does he's still quite laid back And that's also unusual because, again, another myth that gets pandied around. Oh, second baby, they'll be out in 10 seconds flat. And apparently not. No, well, I rushed to the hospital because I thought with her being four hours, he's going to be half an hour. I'm going to be having him in in the car. So no, he took his time. I heard another woman screaming and said, I'm not doing that again. Get me an epidural now. So I had an epidural. Wonderful. And actually, I, I asked for a sweep because I was borderline going to be induced because he was 10 days late. 10 days, gosh. Hmm. So he really was taking a sweet time. Yeah, totally the opposite way around to what the stereotype yes. suggests. 
So there's three years between them and you quit your job in the pub industry. Psychology degree was put on pause. At what point were you like, oh, I'm not going back to that degree? Oh, by about three weeks. <laughs> Maddie, unfortunately, had very severe reflux. It's a killer. It really is. And so I just never slept. And she was very unhappy all of the time. There was just no way I was going back. And how did that make you feel at the time? Or were you just so embroiled in Maddie and trying to fix that, that you weren't bothered? The degree, I no, I totally had made that switch. I didn't really have a long-term goal at that point because I knew that I was going to be having a family. Mm. I just thought it might be something that I would be able to do part-time over a period of time, like lots of people do. It was intense looking after Maddie for that first year. And I was exhausted and I just kept putting it off and putting it off and putting it off. And then we had Evan and I had postnatal depression. With Maddie or with Evan? With both, actually. I'm really sorry to hear that. Yeah, I knew what it was. I saw it for what it was. First time I dealt with it with CBT because we knew we wanted another baby. And then as soon as Evan was born, I went to the GP and said, just put me on meds for the time being until I've got the headspace to tackle it properly. And I can imagine with the second baby, you're probably just thinking, I need to just survive until they're past one, basically. Yeah, you think you need to just survive until your life is back to normal and you never realise... <laughs> Until, as I think I said to you before we started recording, it was about 10 years when I realised that life was never going to be normal again. <laughs> it took this me that long. <laughs> and that's very tough to go through that twice. And even if, although Maddie was naturally conceived in the end, or at least not IVF conceived in the end, that must be strange as well. Because if you really want that baby, there must have been a little bit of emotional turmoil going on because then you think why am I feeling so sad I really wanted this baby so what was going through your head at that time Mm, I think I was still in that place where I felt like I cheated the world and wasn't going to get to keep this child unfortunately her diagnosis of reflux came because she choked in her sleep And we happened to be just looking at her and she was on her back in the rocker and we were watching some TV and having dinner and we were looking at her and she started to wriggle awake as babies do. And then she was squirming and then this kind of semi-digested milk was in her mouth. And that's the first thing we realised. And we picked her up and she started to turn red And I said, oh gosh, she's choking. And I was doing totally the wrong things. I was holding her upright and patting her on the back, as you do, burping a baby. But her airways weren't clear. And so then she went purple. And it was at that point, my mum was there and she called an ambulance. And my husband was smacking her so hard on the back, I thought he was going to break bones. She was on the verge of turning blue. And eventually this big lump of digested milk came out and she breathed again. By which time the ambulance was on its way. So they came, took us in, did some tests, diagnosed reflux over a period of days. And this kind of pattern just continued after every field. It it, it takes a couple of weeks for reflux to really show itself. But yeah, every feed. And they said you have to sit her upright for 45 minutes after every feed. She has to have Gaviscon afterwards. She has to have these two other medications 20 minutes before a feed. You can imagine that with a baby. There was no time left to sleep. And so I, and because I'd seen this horrible thing happen, I don't know if it would have self-resolved if we hadn't been watching, but I never felt like I could go to sleep when she was asleep because I was scared she was going to choke in her sleep. As you were telling that story, my, my head was like in my hands. I can't even imagine the anxiety of that because every parent with a newborn is terrified that they're going to stop breathing, terrified of SIDS, terrified of cot death, all of those things. And it's really drilled into you as well for obvious reasons. But to actually have gone through something so real and literally in your living room when you're both there and everything's very relaxed, like you just feel like you could never relax again. That would just mm. scare me silly. Mm, That is how I felt. And to this day, I still struggle to relax and I still overthink everything. And I do work very hard on myself now. I've had lots of therapy, but we just we had a really unlucky run with her. Maddie has type one diabetes that was diagnosed when she was nine. That was another couple of years of thinking, oh, my God, she could die in her sleep, which she could. It is potentially possible. It does happen. But 
that was the thing that finally taught me that I could not control outcomes. All I could do was my best to influence them and then take time to look after myself as well as my child. And type 1 diabetes, and that's a really difficult diagnosis to contend with. And I'm, I'm sorry for Maddie and also for you that you've had to go through that. And again, as you say, particularly if you're an anxious person, having to then deal with the medical regimen of that and the timetabling and the control, like it's, I know a small amount about diabetes, but how much does it influence her life? Oh, every hour of every day and all through the night. It's every hour of every day monitoring what's going on with your blood sugar, counting carbs, taking the insulin that you've calculated fits with that amount of carbs because it's different every time. Noticing how you feel if your blood sugar's dropping, making sure you eat properly, eat regularly, and then it doesn't go to sleep in the night when you do. So setting yourself up the best you can to get a good night's sleep. But a lot of type 1 diabetics do set their alarm for the middle of the night to test their blood sugar because it can get dangerous in the night without you having predicted it. it diabetes does its own thing because insulin's a hormone, basically. Mm-hmm. It does its own thing and you never know what's coming. I know a tiny bit about this because my son, he actually was born with the opposite of diabetes. Ah. So he had something called hyperinsulinism mm-hmm. and the blood sugar monitoring is mm. unbelievably stressful. And I only had that for six months, not permanent. I I can't even imagine what that must be like. And so obviously Maddie's 16 now. So how is she monitoring it herself? And how's that been to manage with her as her mum? She takes her insulin. She works all that out herself. She's really good. And she wears a glucose sensor, which gives her readings every five minutes and alarms. Oh, wow, that's good. Yeah, thank goodness we have that. Otherwise, it would be even more intense. But it will alarm if she goes over or under certain levels that she's put in there. So she's not eating, drinking, doing exercise. She can just ignore it until the alarm goes off. But often she'll feel it before the alarm goes. Often she knows that she's going into a stressful situation and that's likely to shove her blood sugar up higher or she's going to do exercise. She has to turn her insulin down and then calculate how much, depending on what her blood sugar is when she starts, how much she should eat before she starts. So labour intensive. It really is. But she does pretty much all of that now herself and she will only get more astute and more diligent with it as time goes on. Teenagers are classically difficult for diabetes anyway, and then teenagers really don't want to have diabetes. (laughs) It's as much a mental health condition as it is a physical one because of the burden that it is on you mentally. And diabetes burnout is incredibly common. I'd say we're in quite a good place now. But I do believe it's only because we've had that sensor alarming us before it gets too ridiculously dangerous. That sounds absolutely brilliant. Is that a relatively recent invention? It's been around five or six years, but it's hard to get hold of. It's expensive and funding for it on the NHS is quite rare. It's such a common condition, isn't it? And look, this kind of brings me to talk about what you do now, because I explained a little bit in the introduction, but Helen has this incredible podcast called Teenage Kicks and all of your mummy blogging, your Instagram account, et cetera, is all navigating life around teenagers and being a mum who's glamorous in her fifties and doing all the things that you want to do. And I wanted to talk a bit more about that because we got to kind of exiting the pub, two kids, two rounds of PND, so stressful. What happened after that? And when did you start thinking, I think I want to go back and do something, but I don't know what it is. It was around time when my son had finished being terrible twos, toddler. He was less demanding. He was three. Maddie was six. I needed to be doing something, but I knew that I couldn't go back to work outside of the house. I didn't want to have them in nursery five days a week, but I did need to work. Luckily at the time, after 12 years with a big blue chip company, your redundancy package back then was amazing. So luckily I still had some some time. So when Maddie was first born, it was my birthday not long after and a friend gave me a diary, a journal, and I'd never written a journal before. And I started writing a journal for her, about her. But 
don't ask me why it might have been the champagne I'd had I started writing it in her (laughs) voice and I've got quite a sarcastic sense of humour and my husband read it and said that's hilarious you could write a book and I should have done man versus toddler (laughs) or man versus baby (laughs) I should have been that person but I didn't have confidence in myself but at the same time I was discovering online forums and the internet and I found not a mummy blog but a daddy blog and I thought I could do that I could just put this not in a journal, I could put it online. And then anybody who wants to discover it and offer me a book deal, we know that's not how it works, (laughs) might do so. And I started writing and I loved it. And it was therapeutic. And I started to get followers who were in the same boat as me. And I entered the mummy blogging community and became a mummy blogger. Realised after about 18 months when a brand offered to send me a tube of toothpaste that I might be able to make something of this. Started with the networks and entering competitions, won some awards, got offered more than just toothpaste, you know, Mother's Day outings and trips to restaurants. And then was offered a ski trip for the family and started travel blogging. Mummy travel blogging with my kids. And it was not long after that that brands started offering to pay me money to be featured on my blog, as well as just giving me things to write about. And it became a business. Now, it's not a full-time income, but again, I'm fortunate I haven't needed a full-time income until now. But now that the kids are both older, much more self-sufficient, really busy with school and work, I've got time to uh, develop a full-time income. And hand in hand with that, and this is where Teenage Kicks, the podcast, comes in, everyone stops writing about their children on their blogs when they are teenagers. Nobody wants to talk about their kids' problems online when their kids might be able to see it and read it, or their friends might be able to see it and read it. And so I wanted to write about them, but I couldn't. So the podcast basically talks to individuals who are adults now, but who went through something difficult when they were teenagers. So they're able to explain how it feels to be in that place where difficult things are happening as a teenager. But then they give tips for parents, what they might have liked their parents to have known at the time, and insight for the teenagers who might be dealing with similar to help them cope with it. Great idea. I I knew I couldn't interview my kids. I I, I said, maybe your friends would like to be interviewed. And I thought, no, that's going to end really badly. And their parents wouldn't want to talk to me for the same reasons that I didn't want to talk about my daughter's problems or my son's issues. So this was the only way. But it's actually turned out to be a really nice format and really popular. So here we are. I'm full circle. And I'm thinking, I'm going to go back and do that psychology degree. (laughs) Yeah, so this is what Helen was saying just before I started recording. But it's crazy how this has come full circle. But also how you went from ops director in a pub to mm-hmm. writing. The pub is so extroverted and you're dealing with so many people face to face all the time. And then going to writing, which is quite a lonely business sometimes from my own experience. You are quite alone with your thoughts until you share them with everyone else. But In the beginning, did you ever know that it was going to get as big as it has now? Gosh, no. I honestly thought that Penguin Books would discover me and offer me a book deal. (laughs) That's how naive I was. I didn't think it was going to be a thing in its own for the length of time that it has been. Um, And now it is, yeah, my main source of income, along with Instagram. So no, I had no plans for it. I just really found that I loved writing. And I I was writing in her voice and I was making people laugh. And I loved that. I love being able to entertain. But then when I switched to my voice, I, I found that I could be quite emotional and connect with people. And I'm an introvert, actually. I've learned this about myself. I'm very extroverted in the way I behave. But deep down, I'm an introvert. I need time alone with my thoughts. and I need space and quiet. Maybe that's what I was looking for when I was in the the mix of the early years of noisiness of raising two children. I was just looking for an escape to be with my own thoughts. And I have actually heard that from people that I've worked with who are self-confessed introverts, how tough it is dealing with particularly toddlers or just young children who are just so obviously need so much from you, so much of your extroverted attention. That must be really tough. Do you know what? I've never thought about it like that, but that's exactly it, isn't it? You are constantly switched on when you're with an awake baby. 
you're bombarded. Yeah. yeah, you're needed. You and you want to to deliver the entertainment, the food. You're constantly upbeat. Why don't you try this lovely, yummy yogurt that you really are <laughs> refusing? You know, you really put on a persona that maybe doesn't come naturally to an introvert. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting point, isn't it? So you said that the mummy blogging was going well, and you said that this was when Maddie was about six and Evan was about three. So I'm just doing the math. So this is ten years ago. Mm. Is that about right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and Instagram. I can't really remember how old Instagram is. I didn't join until 2014. I want to say so seven years yeah, ago. Yeah, so. I would have said seven years. Yeah, yeah. And did you recognise Instagram for the potential? that it had in terms of that crossover (laughs) because obviously (laughs) Helen now has a huge following by the way so how did you get into it? I was out with other mummy bloggers after an event that we'd been to we'd gone to Chinatown in London and we were in a Chinese restaurant and um, someone said oh you should get on Instagram and so I took a picture of my soup and posted it it's still there (laughs) (laughs) and we laugh about that now a lot and then of course the big Instagram boom happened It just happened to coincide with my daughter's type 1 diabetes diagnosis. And I really took a step back from everything for 18 months, two years. And I wrote a little bit about diabetes because it was therapy for me. I needed to get it out. I needed to tell the world what this was because there's so much stereotyping around it. But I did not really focus on my blog or my social accounts as a business for a couple of years. And in that time, when I came back, everybody that I'd been rubbing along with at the same levels was 20,000 followers away from me. And I I did actually make the mistake of trying to chase them, trying to get into their front rooms and into their cliques and be the same as them. And I would say it's actually only recently, the last year, probably since I launched the podcast, I've fully realised that does nothing for you and that just being confident in what you're saying and your own message and being authentic I know it's an overused word but being authentically who you are what you are and unapologetic for your message that's the thing that grows you followers it's such a cliche isn't it and I don't want to dwell too much on it because people must be sick to death of it but I do think authenticity is really key and I think sometimes people feel like there's a particular formula or something that's gonna get them famous quickly and actually I think just from a mental health perspective just sticking to who you are as a person and being that unashamedly I think is so important so that's really funny then that you just thought yeah I could jump on this bandwagon but I'm not going to I did get on it for a while and then discovered it was going in the wrong direction for me. So I got (laughs) off and walked back and got on a different bus. (laughs) And what was the wrong direction? The big London influencers, the big fashion shots, which I do, but I do them kind of half-heartedly. And if I look a bit daft, then it still goes up. I can't be the perfect influencer on Instagram. I I just can't. And I've only figured it out by posting things, trying them, seeing if they work or not, looking at the things that then do work and gradually realizing that people are engaging with that and that those are the people that I need to be engaging with, not the people who I think have already made it. Yeah, rather than chasing the dragon. Well, no, you don't even have to chase, do you, if they're people that love what you do? And I'm, actually, I'm, it's really daft of me not to have twigged that much sooner because it was a different time and it was easier to grow a blog at that time. But the way I grew my blog to be as big as it is was by engaging with the people who engaged with me. So people would come and comment on my blog and I'd go and check out theirs and go, oh, okay, I quite like that one. And then we'd strike up a relationship on social media around it. And we had this community that I had been part of building from the beginning. So would you say that there are negatives that you've found with social media? And if so, what are those? That's an interesting question. Yes, there's a constant battle with my own conscience about how much I want to be there. Because you could be there 24-7. Yeah, you definitely could. Creating content, responding to content, looking at other people's content. And the temptation very much is to be there as much as possible so that you never miss a trend, you never miss an opportunity, you never miss a post by the person who you resonate with most. Before social media, you were not there all of the time for everybody in your life. And 
the people in your life were far fewer than they are now. Absolutely. But it's hard, actually. That is a negative. It's actually quite hard to be chilled out about your social media when you take it seriously, especially when you earn money from it. Totally. And especially when you start getting into the thousands, etc, even a tiny percentage of that, you still might be talking 40, 50 people who might be messaging you at any one time. And that's a lot to get back to. And even with WhatsApp and things, you could just be a slave to your phone. Mm -hmm. If you wanted to be a slave, you could be a slave. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And it's really important that I don't role model that kind of behaviour to my kids, because all teenagers are slaves to their phone at one time or another. So yeah, I've become increasingly aware of that. Yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. Unfortunately, we're running out of time and Mm. I want to make sure that I ask you a couple of key questions before we leave because I feel like you've shared a lot of wisdom about having slightly older children and also coming back to something that you love. But when you look forward and what you want to achieve, what's in your vision for both the blog and the podcast? Yeah, so I'm actually redeveloping the website at the moment to incorporate the podcast and some coaching and public speaking pages. That's always been something I've wanted to find a way to do more of. And I'm doing a little bit of that with diabetes knowledge. I volunteer with a charity to speak with families who are newly diagnosed but I'm doing some coaching courses at the moment. And that's evolved from the podcast. I want to ask people questions to help them understand what's going on in their heads and how they can help improve their own situations. I've been fortunate over the years to have had two or three really great therapists and some coaching. And it's helped me so much to clarify what I want to do, clarify my own mind, And also to come to terms with those anxieties that I described and the physical effects that they were starting to have on me. And I really love to be able to do the same thing for other people. So that's the plan. So the website will be the blog, which does earn money. I'll continue to talk about teenage life, living with teenagers, the podcast and some public speaking. And I will be offering coaching and counselling services. You're a woman on a mission. I love it. Yeah, absolutely. So if you look back at kind of Helen pre-children and look at who you are now, what would you say are the main differences? Gosh, I'm way more chilled than I used to be, which I realise might sound weird given that I'm in that stage of parenting that everybody fears and I feared it. And one of the messages that I try to give on my accounts and my blog, my podcast is please don't fear the teenage years. They are so good. I was born to be a teenage parent, not a teenage parent of teenagers. (laughs) I get what you mean. I was terrible at toddlers, whereas my husband was the perfect toddler parent. Now, my kids, if they were listening, would be saying, Mom, you're not that great, you know, because nobody's kids think they're brilliant parents. I just relish it. They're such good company. They're so funny. They're really supportive as well as being horrific and negative and moody and awful to be around. But then aren't toddlers. I've written this blog post a while ago, and it's one of my most read blog posts these days about which is the easiest stage of parenting. And in each section, I've said it's the easiest because of this, but it's the hardest because of that. And it's no different when you get to teenage. And I've been told by parents of fully flown and grown adults It's the same when they're adults. It's really hard to be the parent of an adult child, but it's also incredible. So yeah, yeah, I'm way more chilled. I I tend to go with the flow a lot more. I love what you said there about things being always simultaneously the easiest and the hardest, like each stage. And I think that's dead on. That's absolutely dead on. In my very limited world of parenting, all two giant years of it, each stage you think, oh my God, this is so hard because X. And then you get to the next one, you think, oh my God, this is so hard because of Y. Mm -hmm. And then you look back and you think, yeah, but you know what? They weren't walking then. Or you know what? (laughs) They weren't doing this then. That was a lot easier. And that is so true. Yeah, no. And actually those two years, they're massive years, to be fair to you. They are really big years. (laughs) But yeah, 
you look back and you realise what was good about it. It's so it's so sad that we just can't realise what's good about it in the moment. And I do try to do that a lot more now. I do just sit with my kids and not care about what film we've chosen to watch. I'm just really happy that everyone's in the same room and I just sit and count my blessings. That's what's going on right now. And so I've learned that to live more in the moment with my kids. And to be present. I think that's just really epic advice generally. And just for the people who are listening to this, because a lot of my audience at the moment are new mums or people who are pregnant, etc., and are probably hearing some of this with some trepidation, thinking, oh my God, I've got all this to come. Is there any advice you'd want to give people in, in those stages about how they can look after themselves or things that you wish perhaps you had been told before you became a mum? Yeah, definitely. And I was told it when the health visitors would always say to me, try not to worry too much because this is just a phase. Everything is a phase. And the thing that you're stressed about now will not be the thing that you're going to be stressed about in three weeks time, in six months time, in 12 years time. All of it is a phase. And the the willful toddler that you've got will not necessarily be a horrific teenager. Just remember that everything you're worrying about is just a phase and it's a good motto for the entirety of their lives. I'm so grateful for you joining me today and I couldn't recommend uh, and we haven't by the way we haven't got an arrangement or anything I'm saying this out of like complete love for Helen's Instagram it's beautifully laid out so colourful and it's an amazing insight into a world that I have no knowledge of at all so even if you are like me with small baby or pregnant or whatever but just want a bit of a laugh and to see how a different section of motherhood looks I really employ you to check it out Helen do you want to just give any handles or anything that you want to shout out before we go yeah I'm on Instagram and Twitter as I am Helen Wills if you're a Facebook person that is still actually mummy and yeah the blog is actually mummy and the podcast is on all podcast platforms just search teenage kicks and ignore the pop song yeah. <laughs> yeah good advice I look forward to meeting you in person one day that would be nice oh yeah that would be lovely yeah thank you so much well you made it we've reached the end enjoyed it drop me a note on instagram or twitter at new leaf podcast or better yet do me a quick rating on itunes have a lovely day and if you're a parent have an even better night bye everybody bye